Hello, Anne Holly here, your editor, roundtable, podcast producer. Once in a while, we rethink things after the recording is finished and come up with better answers to one of the six core questions. That's what happened in today's episode. Here, you're going to hear Leslie Watts offer a positive crime story controlling idea that begins with justice prevails when and credits the protagonist with abandoning his selfish motives. Well, in later conversations, Leslie and I realized that double indemnity really isn't a positive crime story and that the protagonist never really abandons his selfish motives. So she changed her take on the controlling idea and added her new one to the show notes. See if you agree that tyranny reigns when the perpetrator outwits the investigator by rigging or outwitting the system isn't a much better fit for this dark film noir crime classic. Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better editor, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with 25 years experience. My name is Anne Hawley, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Joining me shortly are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jerry Bolander, Valerie Francis, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, we watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a Global Fool's Cap worksheet, then discuss the movie using the six core questions. This week, we're analyzing the 1944 film noir classic Double Indemnity, with a screenplay by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler and directed by Billy Wilder. Here's a synopsis adapted from Wikipedia. In 1943, Walter Neff, a successful insurance salesman, returns to his office building in downtown Los Angeles late one night with a gunshot wound to his shoulder. He records a confession for his friend and colleague, Barton Keyes, a brilliant claims adjuster. The story, told primarily in flashback, then ensues. Neff meets the alluring Phyllis Dietrichson during a routine house call to remind her husband to renew his car insurance. They flirt, and Phyllis asks how she can take out an accident policy on her husband's life without his knowledge. Neff deduces that she's contemplating murder and makes it clear that he wants no part of it. But he can't get her out of his mind, and when she shows up at his apartment, he can't resist her. Together, they plan to murder her husband and make it look like an accident, which will trigger the double indemnity clause that pays out twice the policy's face value. When Phyllis drives her husband to the train station, Neff is hiding in the back seat and murders him. He then boards the train posing as the husband and jumps off at a prearranged meeting spot where he and Phyllis drag the husband's body onto the tracks. The insurance company head believes the death was suicide, but Neff's friend Keyes scoffs at that idea. He suspects foul play and continues his investigation. Keyes concludes that the man aboard the train was not Phyllis's husband, but her accomplice. A witness from the train provides corroboration. Now certain that he can prove murder, Keyes convinces the boss to reject the insurance claim. But Phyllis decides to pursue the claim in court, despite the risk to both her and Neff. When Neff learns that there's another man in Phyllis's life, he arranges to meet Phyllis at her house, guessing that she is planning to have this other boyfriend kill him. He tells her that he intends to kill her and blame the boyfriend. She's prepared, however, and shoots him in the shoulder, but he takes her gun and shoots her dead. We return to the framing story with Neff speaking into his dictaphone. Keyes arrives unnoticed and hears enough to learn the truth. Neff tells him that he's going to Mexico rather than face the gas chamber, but he sags to the floor from blood loss, and the film ends with the two men awaiting the police and an ambulance. It's a terrific movie. 
So we'll start with the six core questions. And the first one of the six core questions is what is the global genre? Leslie. Yes. So this is a great film in a lot of ways. But one of the things that was really nice about it is that unlike some of the other films we've done this season, it was really clear what the genre was. So this is a crime, murder mystery, noir story. The value at stake is justice slash injustice. The full range is justice to unfairness, to injustice, to tyranny. Now, I would argue that there's a morality aspect baked into the noir subgenre specifically. It's similar to the way that there's a worldview internal aspect baked into the love story. I would totally agree with that. So I definitely saw that the internal genre looked like morality punitive. And I put this note in and then I went back and saw you had put that it was baked in. And I and anyway, it just made a lot of sense because one of the which we'll talk about one of the conventions of a noir film is that your protagonist is flawed, morally questionable, self-destructive. And so it makes sense that they're having to deal with their own lack of morality. And that ends up being um, a huge part of their fall in self-destruction. So um, I thought it was really interesting how at the beginning of the film, the way he comes on stage, um, we start with the framing device, you know, where we see that he's shot. And then we then once the story actually begins, we notice that he he really isn't he doesn't seem moral to begin with. You know, he's he's very clearly hitting on a married woman and He's, you know, just has no problem doing that and is very forthright in his intentions and that kind of thing. And I, Leslie, this reminded me of something you had mentioned to me before in another call we had, we were talking about the status tragedy. And I noticed that, so when he shows up on stage and he's clearly coming on to this married woman um, and making seductive things that he's saying to her um, and how that really seems like, oh, that's his first mistake. So the fact that he's already has some moral, morally questionable things about him is really what sets him up to be taken advantage of um, and manipulated and brought into this whole whole scheme. And it reminded me how you had said about status tragedy that there's an earlier mistake that leads to their destruction. So it's not always this obvious mistake. There's something else that's kind of planted earlier that sets up for this thing. And this, anyway, it just felt like the fact that he has, is somewhat morally questionable to begin with is what makes him vulnerable to being taken advantage of. So those are my thoughts about the internal genre and specifically what you're saying about morality really feeling like it's baked into the noir subgenre. And just further to your point, Kim, I agree with you that Neff is, you know, morally in the gray zone (laughs) at the beginning of the film. And he is primed for crime because he says um, in the scene where Phyllis has come back to his apartment after he has said that he doesn't want to have anything to do with with her scheme, she comes back to his apartment and convinces him to go along with her plan. We hear then in voiceover when Neff is recording his memo to Keys, he says, I don't have the exact quote, but it's something like, you know how it is keys in this business. We're always trying to figure out how people can get one over on us. And so we know that a crime has been turning over in Neff's head for for years. And what Phyllis does is actually give him the opportunity to see if he can pull it off. So he's certainly not squeaky clean. He might be her patsy, 
and the and the way she goes about getting what she wants. But he's, you know, he's not exactly a Boy Scout at the beginning of the film. True, true. And according to Norman Friedman, a morality punitive plot involves a character who's essentially unsympathetic, which we get with um, our Fred McMurray character here, Neff. He has repugnant goals, and the only reason we admire him at all is that he's very, very clever. And we do admire his clever plan while we deplore his moral weakness, which shows up very early in the second scene. But traditionally, also, the Machiavellian hero ends up victimizing good people, and that gets the audience's pity for the for the good people who are victimized. And we don't feel pity for the plight of his victims in this case, because both of them are pretty reprehensible as well. So I didn't know, it kind of fits the morality punitive and it kind of doesn't, it, it kind of skirts it a little bit, but I would, that's a category I'd choose for it. I also think it's important to note that there is a secondary obsession love story here because it starts with desire and it ends there. I mean, it never moves to intimacy in any way. It moves quickly to deadly obsession and it ends very badly for everybody uh, except maybe the daughter's boyfriend. So without the love obsession, the whole story wouldn't have happened, which is just another way of looking at fundamental flaws in the in the main character. So that brings us to our second of the six core questions, which is what is the beginning hook, the middle build, and the ending payoff, which Jari's going to take us through. Yeah, thanks, Anne. Uh, so uh, yeah, this this is a great uh, movie for that because uh, um, you can clearly see the delineation, and and he, uh, you know, he's even as he narrates his confession and how it fades in and fades out. Um, it's actually a really nice nice uh, dividing line. So uh, for the beginning hook, really the theme of that is uh, Neff's obsession with Phyllis. I mean, it, they are building that all up to the point where something something's going to happen. So. The inciting incident is when Neff meets Phyllis at her home. Uh, you know, there's a, a bunch of complications related to to that. He really is trying to not get sucked into this, but he just can't get her out of her head. So um, when she comes over uh, to his apartment, he, he's got a crisis like, oh, do I let her in? <laughs> and when he does, you know, she just hooks sinks right into him. And you don't know uh, this at the beginning as you're going through this, but you know, she's, she's a femme fatale. So there's, there's all of these great like setups and payoffs. And and we'll talk more about that a little later. So one, once Phil, Walter lets Phyllis or Neff lets Phyllis into the apartment, you know, they're talking about all these things. Um, she, or he is just like, leave, leave. I don't want you here. Uh, and then they start talking about the ways to, um, potentially, uh, you know, kill her husband and how all these people have bought and caught. And then she is like, oh, he doesn't love me. He hits me. I mean, this whole thing where she is really like uh, trying to set the set the trap for him. And so that at that point, the resolution of the beginning hook is that, look, you know, Walter says he needs to think about it. And then you literally cut back to the confession and this is where to keys in the dictaphone. And he's just like, yeah, I can't, you know, I, I felt I care for, her. I can't get her out of my head. And that happens around 30 minutes in. So about, you know, 25% to a third. And then the whole middle build, you know, as a lot of these crime things belongs to the, to the villain. And this, the theme of this is the lovers hatch this plan and then they got to execute the plan. 
And then the inciting incident of the whole thing is, hey, Walter tells Phyllis, hey, I'm in. I'm going to kill him. We ha- It has to be perfect straight down the line, which you hear this over and over again. Uh, and then the first thing that happens is Walter needs to get uh, Phyllis's husband to sign this document. So um, that is a the kind of, okay, we're going to make this happen. Um, progressive complication of the whole thing is, her husband breaks his leg. He was supposed to go to Palo Alto. You know, they're supposed to get him on a train because the double indemnity clause kicks in if you get killed on a train, which I don't understand. But all right, that's what happens. And then they do the act. They do the crime. And now a lot of the complication is the president thinks it's suicide. You know, Phyllis is doing a good job trying to be, uh, you know, a little um KG and, you know, being like the good widow. But in the end, they're like going to offer a deal and she can take the deal. And then all this goes away, but she's too greedy. So her crisis is, do I take this deal? Let this all drop. And of course she gives her little speech. That's basically like, how can you say that? I'm a, I'm a grieving widower and love my husband and all that. I can't believe you'd say this. And she storms out and that's how, the, the, the middle build ends. And now what has to happen is now you start to get a sense that uh, Keys, who's the adjuster, claims adjuster, he now is like, okay, I don't think this is suicide. And, and you sort of don't get that until you're a little bit more in the ending payoff. But in the ending payoff, this, this is the part where if you were to look at a theme for it is like, things are just not what they seem. You start to get all of the payoffs of all the little setups that have happened and the twists and the turns. And um, it's just really well done and really well shot. But the inciting incident and the ending payoff, when you sort of know, okay, things are not going to end well for Walter is keys goes to his apartment and says, ah, I've got this little man in my chest. And it's like a, it's like concrete or a brick or it's like, ah, just, it's been nagging at me. And, you know, Keys is a claims adjuster man, so he he knows all the little tricks. And so, what what then happens is uh, there's a, a progressive complication that Dietrich's daughter from a previous marriage gets into the picture. Um, we originally see her introduced when Neff goes over to try to sell insurance. She shows up in his car, so you're like, "What the heck's going on?" And again. It's a little, all of these little setups and payoffs, you'll, you'll, you'll start to come around and see. But really, it's all about Neff feels guilty. He's getting closer to the husband's daughter. She, the daughter starts saying, I think it's my stepmother that killed him. And, you know, there's all of these like, oh man, you know, Neff's got to do something, right? He, he's got to figure out how to, like, how am I going to get out of this? Um, and so all those complications lead to the fact that they meet at her house and he's got murder in his mind, I guess would be the word. And, um, you know, she, she's got the same thing. She's like, you know what? He's my stooge. And this is when you kind of find out, oh, she's a femme fatale. She's done this before. And then she gives her speech in praise of her as the villain and then shoots him. And so in the shoulder, and then he does this whole, Hey baby, you know, it's like the baby thing is just so like on the nose and like, and the twinkle in Fred McMurray's eye, you're like, man, you're a creeper. That's like in the music, you're like, dun, 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 you know? And so the real crisis question in the ending payoff is Walter goes to Phyllis. Phyllis has already shot him. He takes the gun. Does Walter kill Phyllis? And in the end, 
he does. He shoots her twice and she's dead. But the, uh, the famous line in there is like, she says she never loved him until a minute ago when I couldn't fire that second shot. And then, of course, Neff doesn't believe a word she says, and he hugs or she hugs him tightly. And then Neff says, <laughs> goodbye, baby. <laughs> it shoots twice. But that's really not the end. That's sort of the, I don't know, false ending. And the resolution of this whole thing is you you now understand the, the confession to Keys and the, and the, dic- the dictaphone. Um, and then Keys shows up in the office. Um, and he's like, Neff's like, I want to set you straight. You know, you really were on the right track. You just were too close to it because the guy across <laughs> the desk from you is the one that did it. And uh, the best thing, I just love this sort of setup payoff thing is, you know, the lighting of Key's cigar. I mean, Neff's the guy that can like flick the flick the match. And, you know, he's always like, for whatever reason, Keys can never light his own cigar. And then in the end... Keys lights Neff's cigarette the same way and fade to black. Yeah, and there you right. go. <laughs> so, I mean, just like textbook, boom, 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 every little thing. It's just such a beautiful movie. Set up, payoff, set up, pay. This is another one of those things where you're like, I better remember the fact that they met. I better remember the fact that he lights the cigar. I better remember the fact that he said this. You know, it's, it's a really great thing. So, a lot of good setups and payoffs in this. So let's go on to the obligatory scenes of the crime noir story. Valerie's going to take us through that. Yeah, there are six for crime noir. And uh, the first one is an inciting crime. Now, the thing to remember with Double Indemnity is that it's a story told in flashback. So although the crime happened chronologically first, we don't actually know what it was until the end of the story. So the inciting crime is actually when Neff murders Phyllis. And as a result, he's got a a wound in his shoulder. And of course, when the movie starts, we just see him with a wound in his shoulder. So that's the inciting crime. Next is the speech in praise of the villain. Now, there are two villains, I argue, in this film. First, obviously, it's Phyllis. She's the main baddie. And Neff is also a villain. He's a stooge, but he's a villain. There is no one big uh, monologue where Phyllis is praised. However, throughout the film, there are little hints, little drops, little comments. Clearly, Neff is physically attracted to her. We get that right off the bat from, you know, the second scene. Well, even in the first scene, because he, he says that he did it for a woman and for the money, and he didn't get the woman or the money. So right away, we know, he, we know he's enamored with somebody. He also says that uh, he thinks she's swell so long as he's not her husband. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed the dialogue, I have to say. It was with the distance of time from when it was written to, when, to now, some of it was almost like a spoof of itself. But I really loved the economy of the writing in this film. And in the final scene, right before he shoots her, in that whole scene, there are all kinds of little lines where we see that although Neff is really ticked with her and because he realizes now that he's been duped, he nonetheless still cares about her and still in a way kind of admirer, admires her, her evil mind. He says, now I believe you because it's just rotten enough. And she says, we're both rotten. 
And he says, yeah, only you're more rotten than me, which I thought was great. Uh, Lola also gives <laughs> Lola also gives a speech in praise of the villain when she's telling Neff about the way that Phyllis killed her mom. The speech is in praise of Neff. There are several. Again, they're all by keys. Uh, he says at the beginning that he's a great insurance salesman and he offers him in, he offers him a promotion. And in the office memo that Keyes overhears, he actually vouches for him and says that there's no way he could be mixed up in the Dietrichson case. Three, discovering and understanding the antagonist's MacGuffin. So we understand the MacGuffin uh, in the next scene when Phyllis goes to Neff's apartment and uh, pretends to be the, the victim of domestic violence and she gives him the whole sob story. It's not the entire truth though. And we don't, we as an audience and Neff, in fact, himself doesn't really understand this until the end of the story when Lola, who is Dietrichson's daughter, says that her boyfriend, Nino, has been going to Phyllis's house every night since uh, Dietrichson died. And Neff was led to believe that Nino and Phyllis were in this together and he was the dupe for the two of them. What we ultimately find out, and it's not until the last scene or close to the last scene when Neff and Phyllis face off one another, that Phyllis just wants them all gone. She just wants the money. So I thought it was just a brilliant way to create suspense in the story. It's not that at the beginning of the film, we discover and understand the MacGuffin right off the beginning and it, and it never changes. It's constantly changing throughout the whole story to keep you in suspense as to what's really going on here. I really enjoyed that part. Mm. Obligatory scene number four, progressively complicated following of the clues. Now, this is where the Barton Keys character comes in to play. He is actually the claims manager in the insurance company, but he's fulfilling the role of the detective in a crime story. He's the one that's piecing everything together. So he starts out believing that Dietrichson's death is indeed an accident. He's got the coroner's report, the police report, um, and he's dismissed the idea of suicide himself. But in the very next scene, he goes to Neff and says that the little man inside of him, his instinct, is telling, them, telling him that there's something wrong because he's wondering why Dietrichson didn't put a claim in when he broke his leg because he had the policy before he broke his leg. Then we have... He's telling Neff that he believes Dietrichson was murdered, and he outlines the whole his whole idea as to how that could have happened. And he says that there must have been somebody else working with Phyllis, although he doesn't know who that somebody else is. We have Mr. Jackson, who is the guy from the train, who shows up in Key's office. The complications continue to unravel when Neff believe, and this is a huge turning point in the story, when Neff believes that Nino and Phyllis are in on this together, and that he was their dupe. The real brain twister, as Neff says, is when Phyllis files the suit against the insurance company, and Key says that he knows who the somebody else is, that the somebody else showed up. Well, Neff knows that he didn't come forward, so he's wondering what's going on. This makes him go to Key's office and listen to the memo that uh, Keyes has recorded. Finally, as Neff, now a lover scorned, goes to Phyllis's house with a plan to murder her, 
but Phyllis, of course, has a plan to murder Neff. I thought this was a really neat twist on the title, Double Indemnity. If you look at the word indemnity as meaning an escape or a security away from a legal responsibility for something, well, if one of them gets rid of the other, they can get away with this crime. So I thought that was awesome. At the end of the scene, Neff realizes that Nino was also being set up, and he then shows a, a glimmer of good guy and sets Nino and Lola back up together. We have the exposure of the criminal. This happens in the very opening scene of the film when Walter Neff, in an office memo to his boss, confesses to the murder of uh, Mr. Dietrichson, and I believe also Phyllis. I'd have to go back and listen to it. And finally, the last obligatory scene is when the criminal is brought to justice or or escapes justice. Now, Neff tries to escape to Mexico to avoid justice, uh, which of course is the gas chamber. However, he succumbs to his wounds and uh, his wound and collapses in the doorway and Keyes calls the ambulance and the police. We get justice in the end, or at least the promise of justice in the end. I loved how this movie turns, it turns the hero's journey sort of inside out because if you view Neff as the protagonist, which he appears to be because of the point of view, the call to adventure is Phyllis hinting that she'd like, you know, to get rid of her husband and he refuses the call. And then he accepts the call and the adventure is murder. And it's a mark to me of how well the story is told and how, how, strong this noir convention is that we're we're hooked in right from the start and we're almost rooting for Walter Neff to get away with his this in- incredibly clever almost perfect crime and we almost view Keys as the antagonist it's really interesting the way it turns the hero's journey inside out i i enjoyed that about it very much our next question in the six core questions is what are the conventions of the crime noir story and kim's going to take us through that Yeah, so the first convention of any crime story is the MacGuffin, which Valerie's talked about already. So this is that villain's object of desire. It's what the villain wants, and it can be either conscious or subconscious. So, and exactly as Valerie said, it's interesting because we have two villains here. We have Phyllis Dietrichson and our protagonist, Walter Neff. So for Phyllis, she's a black widow uh, pulling a long con. So her object of desire is to be free of her husband and independently wealthy. She'd already killed the first Mrs. Dietrichson. She took her place and she's been biding her time for an opportunity to be rid of Mr. Dietrichson. Um, She was foiled because his life insurance, et cetera, passes solely to his daughter which is why she ends up needing to get someone else um, to help her. And for Walter, he explicitly tells us on the dictaphone at the beginning of of his message to Keyes, he did it for the money and for a woman, but he got neither. So that's the MacGuffin here. The next item, the next convention that's going to be in any crime story is to, there's going to be investigative red herrings. So these are seemingly revelatory false clues that mislead the protagonist and or the investigator. Now in this story, the protagonist and our typical investigator are two different people, which is, we'll see as a convention of noir. And so here, the different characters know different pieces of information than the others. So at first, we have the main boss, the president of the insurance company. He believes that Mr. Dietrichson died of suicide, and he specifically hones in on the cigar case as his his clue. As, as soon as they bring it up, like, oh, he went back to get his cigar case, and he said, ah, the cigar case, how interesting. And then he goes on to explain why he thinks they'd use the cigar case to get that other man 
Jackson from Medford, Oregon, which he was very proud of, off the back of the train so that he could jump. And but then, of course, we realize, you know, Keyes sets him straight. And it, it was interesting because as Keyes was refuting his idea for suicide, it also was its own red herring in that Keyes thought it to be an accident because of the statistics that he brought up. And Keyes, I have to say, was my favorite character. And he had some of the greatest lines and dialogue and the way he explained things. It was just so, so fun to listen to. Where he talks about, you know, the statistics of, of suicide and all the different types of accidents that they have and the speed of the train. And so even that in itself ends up being a red herring, sort of. The other red herring was that moment when um, they believe that Nino Zacchetti is the other, the someone else. So Keyes thinks that he's the someone else due to that his whereabouts were unknown on the night of the murder and that he's been meeting with Phyllis several nights in a row. And this makes Neff start to think that Phyllis and Zacchetti were setting him up from the beginning. Um, But then we find out that Phyllis was setting everyone up. Next convention is making it personal. So the villain needs the protagonist to get the MacGuffin and thus must manipulate them in order to get their success. So we can't just have the, you know, we have to find a way to intertwine our protagonist and our villain together. And and that's what making it personal is all about. So in this case, Phyllis is the ultimate villain of the story. She's the mastermind who's been looking for an opportunity to get rid of her husband. So when she meets Neff, she sees this opportunity and exploits it using um, his attraction to her and his knowledge and insurance, and then for him to pull off the murder and cover their tracks. So she needs Neff to get this job done and and pulls him into becoming a criminal. And, and that's how she makes it, pers- we make it personal for the protagonist. So the next convention of any crime story is a clock. So there's a limited amount of time for the protagonist or the villain to act. So I noted two different times when there was a clock. The first one is that they have a specific window in which to execute the murder because of the train. So they've already decided that they need it to be on a train, they need them to die on a train. That's how they're going to get the double indemnity clause and get paid. And so they have to go at first, they, you know, they have it planned where he's going on the train, but then he ends up breaking his leg. And then he has to, they have to wait until he's going on the train again. And then she's, she calls him and says, it has to be tonight. He's going on the train tonight. So then they're rushed to try to get everything figured out so that they can, they can murder him that day or they'll miss the opportunity from when he's ever going to take a train again. After the murder, there are several times um, that Keyes mentions, you know, he has to do certain things before she goes to court because then that's when, you know, Lola will take the stand and all sorts of things are going to come out. So they have they have a specific amount of time that he has to do whatever he's going to do um, before the truth comes out in court. So then there are some specific subgenre conventions specifically for noir and um, and also for hard-boiled, and they are different, which was really interesting to notice um, in doing my research that hard-boiled and noir are two separate subgenres. They are very similar, and one sort of led to the other. Um, and so those specific subgenre conventions will be in the show notes, and I encourage you to check them out. Great. Thank you, Kim. Now, the final three questions of the of the uh, six core questions are the point of view and narrative device, the object of desire, and the controlling idea and theme. And our good friend Leslie Watts is going to take us through all three of them. Okay, so as mentioned, we have a framing story that takes place in the present here. And we're coming from the point of view of Walter Neff, you know, in the context of setting keys right because it was really important to him that he wasn't confessing. So 
Most of the events are revealed through flashback with Neff's voiceover cutting in to give us his hard-won perspective on the events that have happened. So like we discussed in the Bridges of Madison County, this, is, this creates dramatic irony where the audience knows more than the characters that are on screen at the moment. So we know it ends badly. And interestingly enough, that means that the intrigue, which is the core emotion of a crime story, isn't about who done it, but we can't look away because we're curious about why a man like this might, you know, what might do something like this and and how he came to be in the in the position. So some of the conventions for the film support this point of view. We might liken this to sales category conventions, uh, if we're talking about uh, books, you know, written, written stories. So we've got the Venetian blind lighting that's reminiscent of prison stripes. We've got, there's dust that they used in filming Dietrichson's house to make it seem dirty. There's the dissonant music that Jari mentioned and lots of shadows and all of that. So if you're writing a story like this, or if you are using a film as a masterwork, you want to consider how you can create the same atmosphere in your story so that you're giving the reader the same kind of feel they might have in, you know, when they're watching the film. And you could think about things like word choice, pacing, description, those kinds of things will start to Uh, create that atmosphere. And I'm sure there are lots of other elements too. So that's the point of view and narrative device. In terms of the objects of desire or the wants and needs, I focused on Walter Neff, the protagonist. And Neff really wants the girl and her (laughs) ankles for some reason. Uh, That is the best line (laughs) ever. I was, I was like, okay, okay, sure. The the money to me, I mean, he mentions it straight out and he mentions it at other times, but it seemed secondary to me. And maybe it was more of a means to the end of getting Phyllis. So that's the want. The need is really Neff needs to abandon his selfish motive and see justice done in the end. And that to me is tied to the baked in morality aspect of the noir. So if you take all of that together, the controlling idea slash theme for this story, I think, is justice prevails when the protagonist abandons his selfish motives and outwits the antagonist. And so I modified that a little bit from the standard crime story controlling idea for the noir story to incorporate that aspect. And then just one other little thing that I was thinking about is that oftentimes in a crime story, you don't have a real internal genre that the need is often to see justice done, whereas the want is the specific, how is that going to happen in this case? So wanting to expose and bring to justice the criminal in a particular case. Great. 
The final section of our show is always when we look at some good examples from the movie. They might be a special scene type, outstanding tropes, clear tie-ins to other genres. And uh, Leslie, I think you had a couple of them for us. I did. This was really interesting to me because James Kane's story was inspired by a real-life murder. Uh, Ruth Snyder was the she murdered her husband for insurance, and she was executed for that crime in 1928. And the case is famous for a few reasons, not the least of which is that a photographer got a picture of her execution. So it's one of the most famous photos from the hmm. 1920s. James Kane included the executions in his original novella, but Wilder and Chandler took the scene out of the film because when they saw that scene, that final scene between Walter Neff and Keyes, they thought this is just a much better ending. We don't need that. So that's really interesting uh, to me about how they made that choice at the end. And Wilder and Chandler were also the ones that came up with the dictaphone framing device, which Kane later said he would have used if he had thought of it, which I love that. It was a great device. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then the other thing is that this is either, this film is either the first or at least a very early example of noir film. And it's the first time that we're really looking at the means, motive, and opportunity of the criminal, and they're exposed, you know, in the, or explored in the context of the murder story. And I think this is this is a necessary part of noir because the criminal has been exposed. We know who it is, so there needs to be this, you know, something to keep us intrigued. So we have curious curiosity about. What would cause someone to do this, right? It's not, we might have, you know, criminal urges from time to time, but normally people, you know, they, they come to their senses before they actually do something. But we're curious about what happens in the mind of someone who doesn't forego the action. And then just one other thing about this particular story is that the inspiration for the motive of this inside guy accomplice came from a printer who had allowed an unfortunate misspelling of the word tuck to appear on a billboard. Uh, sadly, <laughs> T was replaced with F. And his explanation was, you do nothing your whole life but watch for something like that happening so as to head it off. And then you catch yourself watching for chances to do it. And so I thought that was wow. really powerful. And they adapted it so well with Walter Neff. That's fantastic. Great backstory. Yeah, totally. I mean, and, and there's so many, uh, like I said, setups and payoffs that are just so awesome in this film. And the one that I really love is uh, Neff or Walter always lights Key's cigars. I mean, for whatever reason, Key's can never find a way to light a cigar. Uh, and it's the coolest way with the strike anywhere match in his thumb. And he's just like, God, Fred McMurray's such a cool guy. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, <laughs> man, you're looking really sharp. Yeah, Jari, I wanted, you'd mentioned that earlier, and it made me think that 
Keyes says he doesn't like to put the matches in his pocket because they always explode in his pocket, right? He says something about them exploding in his pocket. And I thought that was somewhat poetic because it seems like that's kind of what Neff's going through. This opportunity is exploding in his pocket. So, <laughs> Oh, exactly. And also like the way, you know, they use the dictaphone um, and the ending payoff. I mean, it, it actually starts the movie off. And so you sort of know, okay, something went wrong. I mean, it's kind of like Titanic. You know, it's going to end badly. You just don't know how they're going to get to the bad ending. So really nice way. And I think that's also uh, uh, one of the conventions of of noir and those kind of shows, you know, even like a Hitchcock where he comes in and says, well, this is going to end badly. And then you're like, oh, yeah. And then how is it going to end badly? Let's find out how. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This movie has a great example of a repeated motif that I think writers who aren't even writing movies but novels can also use, and the motif is rails. The opening scene, the very opening scene, has Walter driving back to his office in the dark, wounded, driving badly, and he's narrowly missing some workers who are working on a trolley line, and those the trolley line is kind of highlighted by the strange film noir lighting. And then Keyes says that two murderers working together are on the same trolley and have to ride it together to the end of the line, which is the cemetery. And then Phyllis and Neff repeatedly talk about going straight down the line together. And of course, the murder itself depends on a train. So the repeated motif unifies the story visually and thematically, and it might be a bit heavy-handed by today's standards, but it's it gives this feeling of a solid core of meaning that the story is on rails and it will roll to its inevitable conclusion at the cemetery. And I thought that was really nicely done. I really enjoyed the writing style of this story. It's very economical. There is no fat whatsoever. Every action, every line of dialogue is doing double and triple duty. And I have to say, I really appreciate stories that are written this way that makes you it makes you think. And if you watch the film a second, third, 10th time, you're going to see just a little bit more in the story. So for anyone looking to write in an economical way, who wants to use subtext or wants to have a line of dialogue do two or three different things, this is a great film to watch uh, for help to help you with that. And one little trivia note for anyone who's a, a Raymond Chandler fan, he's actually in this film. And this is the one really? and only time that, yeah, this is the one and only time that he has appeared in, in a film. If you go about 16 minutes into the movie, Walter Neff is coming out of Key's office and there's a guy sitting outside Key's office reading a book and Neff walks past him. The guy reading the book is Raymond Chandler. Wow. I noticed him and I thought maybe he was going to come into the story somehow, but apparently they just focused on him that extra second because he was Raymond Chandler. He's Raymond Chandler. <laughs> He's all over the story. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion, everybody. Thank you, Jari, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie for these excellent editorial insights into Double Indemnity. We hope our discussion helps you help your clients write a better crime story. Links to the Fool's Cap and other materials will be in the show notes document. And we'd like to invite our listeners in the StoryGrid editing and writing community to comment, argue with us on our interpretations. And if you have a favorite movie that you'd like us to look at in future seasons, please suggest it to us on Twitter at StoryGridRT. Join us again next time when we've got a wildcard episode for you. Tune in to see what it will be. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.